chapter 5, book of John chapter 5. There are um, certain pieces of information uh, that you get in life that you know are just going to change everything. Uh, I think, for example, of, of um, when we found out uh, that we were expecting, and uh, all of a sudden there's this moment where you go, whoa, what am I going to do with this? This, this changes uh, everything. I, I, I have to do something with this. Uh, I've got to prepare to be uh, a father of a child I don't, don't yet know. Um, there's just no escaping this. There's no pretending this reality uh, isn't here. Uh, I've got to respond to it. And in the passage that we're going to look at tonight, uh, we're presented with a, a, a reality that is thrust upon us, that something has taken place that we've got to do something with. There's no pretending uh, that it hasn't happened. So we're going to pick up at, at John 5, verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, that is, Jesus because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself." And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Let's ask for the Lord's help now. Oh, Father, as we just read in these words... It is by the voice of the Son of God that the, the dead come to life. And so, Lord, recognizing that apart from Christ, apart from your word, we are dead in sin, we pray that your voice would thunder forth tonight from the pages of your word, that you would overcome any insufficiency on my part as the messenger or our part as hearers, those who come under the word, that we would hear the voice of the Son of God so that we might have life. Lord, we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Now, the words uh, that we just heard Jesus speak in John 5 come uh, on the heels of a most extraordinary event in Jerusalem. If this had been the era of uh, Twitter and smartphones, Jesus' name certainly would have been trending uh, as uh, people would have been talking about how uh, he had come, from, uh, come to Jerusalem from Galilee and he had healed a man who had been paralyzed for 38 years. Jesus had encountered this paralyzed man at a pool. This pool was thought to have certain healing properties uh, and he had met him on a Sabbath day. And though there had been many other people who were lame and sick gathered around this pool hoping to be healed, it was this particular man who arrested Jesus' attention and captured his pity. And with a simple command for the man to get up, take up his mat, and walk, Jesus caused power and life to break forth into the man's lame legs. Now, you can read the whole account on your own time, but uh, for our purpose, we need to note that not everyone was impressed or very pleased, for that matter, with this miraculous healing. The religious leaders were particularly upset that Jesus had healed this paralyzed man on the Sabbath day. Now, the Sabbath day, which was the last day of the uh, week in the Jewish calendar, was specifically set aside as a day uh, of rest from work. God had included this as uh, one of his commands in the Ten Commandments that he gave to his people at Mount Sinai. But over time, uh, the religious leaders of of God's people uh, added to this command so that there was an increasingly complex set of rules that uh, told the people how they were expected to keep this day of rest, saying what you can and cannot do on the Sabbath. So, for example, uh, according to uh, Jewish teaching, you could travel uh, only a thousand yards outside your village or town on a Sabbath. But if you planned ahead on the night before and placed some food uh, uh, within that thousand yards, on the Sabbath day, that source of food became like a temporary house. And so the thousand yards was measured for that. Uh, from that. So it was a way of sort of extending how far you could travel, travel on the Sabbath. But under this expanded notion of the Sabbath, it, Jesus was being accused of having violated the commandments of God because he had done a work of healing this paralyzed man. Now, uh, good, a, a good defense attorney might have argued that Jesus wasn't, in fact, breaking uh, God's command uh, for the Sabbath as God had commanded it. But Jesus, he's not interested in mounting a defense here or escaping the charges that are brought against him. He has a greater purpose. Jesus is far more interested in declaring who he is, the Son of God sent from heaven, than declaring his innocence from these misguided charges. And so it's for this reason that Jesus says in verse 17, in response to the anger that's directed at him for healing this man on the Sabbath, he says, my father, meaning God, is working until now and I am working. In other words, though God had rested from his work of creation after six days, uh, God continued to work by upholding or preserving the, word, uh, the, the, the world. And Jesus was saying, since God continues to work in this way, it's fitting that I, Jesus say, uh, said, uh, should continue to be working as well. 
Jesus' words just make the religious leaders uh, absolutely furious to the point where they want to kill him because, John tells us in verse 18, not only was Jesus breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This sounded like utter blasphemy to the Jews. Here was some Galilean teacher who waltzes into town, breaks one of God's holy commands, and then justifies it by putting himself on the same plane, the same level as God. Every proper Jew knew that there was but one God, one God alone, and there was no God beside him. And yet Jesus' remarks sounded as if Jesus was sort of inserting himself on the, the top podium alongside of God as a, as a competing God, a rival God, a second God. Now I want us to have this, this objection, this controversy in the back of our mind as we approach our passage this evening because Jesus purposefully turns this controversy about his activity into a question about his identity. Rather than debating the merits of his actions on the Sabbath, Jesus transforms this situation into a question about his identity. Who is he? Who is Jesus? So what does Jesus want us to see in these words that we read? Well, he wants us to see who he is. He wants us to see that the Father in the Son has revealed himself to the world that he has given life to the world and that he will pass judgment on the world and for this reason we should believe in him that we might pass from condemnation and death to eternal life. He wants us to see that the Father in the Son has revealed himself to the world. He has given life to the world and he will pass judgment on the world and that we are to believe in him that we might pass from condemnation and death to life. Now, the religious leaders are irate that Jesus would consider himself equal with God. But while Jesus is making a very high claim, the Jews are misunderstanding exactly what Jesus is saying. While Jesus is claiming to be God, he's not doing it in the way that the Jewish leaders suspect he's doing it. He's not setting himself up uh, uh, as a second God on, on the plane or on par with God. When Jesus begins speaking in verse 19, he begins by insisting that he, as the Son, can only do what he sees the Father doing. This is a claim to divine unity, unity of purpose, unity of activity. There's nothing that the Son can do that is contrary or independent from the activity of God himself. The reason for this is that uh, uh, because whatever God the Father does, the Son also does likewise. So let this bold claim that Jesus is making sink in for a second. He says, I can only do what God himself shows me to do. The implication of of this, of course, is that whatever uh, I do, Jesus says, I do because God himself is doing it. Now, what would you say if if I stood up here and I said uh, the same thing to you? First of all, you'd be saying, uh, you were locked away way too long in your office this week. Uh, There's something going on here. Uh, And then second, you'd get the elders and you'd have them yank me off uh, from behind the pulpit. Because Jesus isn't uh, just saying that that he tries his hardest to do the Father's will, or he mostly kind of, sort of does the Father's will. He's saying that he can do nothing except the Father's will. 
all that the Father does, the Son, in obedience, does likewise. So Jesus is saying that whatever he does, this is the revelation of God. Now suppose I were to ask you a question. Why does God reveal himself in his Son? How would you answer that? Why does God reveal himself in his son? My suspicion is that you would say something along the lines of, God reveals himself in his son because uh, he loves us. He reveals himself uh, in his son because God wants us to know him. Now, while this is true, this isn't quite the answer that Jesus gives. Jesus' answer is different. The reason God the Father reveals himself in the son is, first of all, not because he loves us, but because he loves his own son. Look at verse 20. The son does whatever the father does for or because the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. The son's exact obedience, the unity of his will and activity with the fathers is grounded in the father's love for his son. All that the the Son does is dependent on the Father because the Father loves the Son and shows the Son all that He Himself is doing. Now, as commentators on this passage have pointed out, the language of sonship in the Apostle John's day would have carried with it certain connotations that are perhaps a little more distant uh, from our own minds. For example, in those days, a son would almost certainly adopt the profession of his father. So if your father was a carpenter, you would become a carpenter. If your father was the town potter, then you would start making pots. The son would uh, apprentice uh, with his father. He would learn the the family business by uh, going with dad to the shop or, or tilling the soil with dad at an early age. Now, do you suppose that a loving father would hold anything back in this case? That the father who was a baker would withhold from his dear son how to make his world-famous bread. Or that the father who was a boatmaker would withhold from his son any detail on how to make a a, a world-class boat. Certainly not. Not a loving father. A loving father would share all these things with his son. As many of you know, Suzanne and I recently uh, purchased a a home uh, that required a lot of work to do before we moved in. Now, for some of you who probably watch too much HGTV, that sounds like a lot of fun. Um, To a Calvin Seminary graduate, that sounds like an insurance claim waiting to happen. And so uh, I just recognize I am completely uh, out of my element with this. And uh, some of you know that firsthand now. Um, And so uh, I have to answer questions like, how do you change an electrical outlet? I have no clue. Um, I was just at a complete loss. So what do you think I did? Well, I called my dad up on FaceTime. Uh, and so no matter when I called, and no matter what I interrupted uh, when I called him, uh, my dad would stop what he was doing, and he would spend an hour or however long it took to overcome my ignorance uh, to walk me through how to install an electrical outlet or uh, how to put in a light fixture. So let me ask the dads in the room, why did my dad do that? Why did he take the time? Why would you do it for your son or for your daughter? My dad did it because he loves me. He loves me. He doesn't hold back any of this information or, or his skill. He doesn't begrudge any, uh, 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 any giving of this to me, not in the least. He wants to share with me all he knows and does exactly for the reason that, he, uh, that I am his son and he loves me. 
And so it is between God the Father and God the Son. Not, of course, that the Son is ignorant like I was in this example and and that he needs to be enlightened. That's not the point here. But the point is that since the Father loves the Son, he hides nothing from him. All that the Father knows and does belongs to the Son. And so the Son, in turn, because he loves the Father, and for that very reason we see in John 4, 31, uh, the, the Son obeys all that the Father commands him. So then Jesus says, because the Father loves the Son, he shows him everything. And because the Son loves the Father, he does all that he sees the Father doing. For this reason, the Son is the perfect revelation of God. You see what this means? It means that if you want to know God, you need to look no further than his Son, Jesus We can't see the Father. He's invisible. He's dwelling in inapproachable light, as Paul uh, tells Timothy. Uh, We can't set our eyes upon God the Father as he is in himself. And yet if Jesus is not lying, if he's not deceived, but if he's telling the truth, then God has penetrated our darkness so that he has set himself before the eyes of men. If you want to know God, then you need to look on Jesus the Son. Sermon Bavink, the great Dutch theologian, said, whoever wants to learn uh, to know God's thought, God's counsel, and God's will for mankind in the world, let him listen to Christ, the Son, and hear him. The Son is the revelation of God himself. There's no reason why we should grope about wildly or blindly to discover the spiritual secrets of heaven since God has provided for our weakness by bringing the treasure of heaven down right before our eyes. He has laid himself right before our eyes. As Calvin said, let us learn to direct our eyes to Christ alone as all power is committed to him and in his face God the Father, who would otherwise have been hidden and at a distance, he appears to us so that the unveiled majesty of God does not swallow us up by its inconceivable brightness. So here's what this means for us. Since the Christian life is about knowing God, and the Father has made himself known to us in the Son, we never outgrow looking upon Jesus. There's no second stage, there's no graduate level Christianity except to know the Son and in him the Father more deeply. Christian, since the Christian life is about knowing God and God is known perfectly in his Son, the Christian life from conversion to glory is about gazing more intently, studying more closely, experiencing more fully God as he has revealed himself in the Son. We should look to Jesus as long as we have not exhausted all there is to know about God. And we will never exhaust all there is to know about God. Because in Jesus, in the Son, the fullness of God dwells bodily. Now Jesus says in verse 20 that not only does the Father show the Son all he is doing, but the Father has greater works than this healing that just took place that he will show the Son The first of these greater works that the Father would show the Son and that the Son in obedience would do is given to us in verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. This is just an example of what Jesus has just said about the Son acting in perfect accord or, or unity with the Father. In the same way that the Father raises the dead, giving them life, so also the Son gives life. 
But for Jesus to say uh, what he says here, uh, that, that he's the son who gives life to whom he will, this is to make an extraordinary claim. Because according to the Jewish scriptures, there was only one person who could rightly claim to have the power to give life, and that was God. Sure, the prophet Elijah had uh, raised the widow's son from the, the dead, but Elijah was no more than a conduit, an instrument that God had used, and he had channeled his resurrecting power through. Elijah was not able to, to raise whomever he will. He, he did not walk about the, the countryside of Samaria raising the prophets who had been killed by Ahab and Jezebel. He would never think to say that he had life in himself. You never dared to, to claim that power. He knew that power belonged to God alone. But then there's Jesus here. He does make such a claim, quite unapologetically, in fact. For not only does he say in verse 21 that uh, he has life to give to whomever he will, but he goes on to say in verse 24 and 25 quite emphatically that they will receive life only as they hear and obey his words. And then in verse 26, that the Father has given to the Son to have life in himself. Like the Father, Jesus is saying, the Son depends on no one or nothing outside of himself for his existence. And because of this, life properly begins to him. And Jesus can give this life to whomever he will. Now what exactly does Jesus mean by this? What sort of life, what type of life does he offer? From this passage, we need to say that the life the Son gives is, is, uh, is twofold. First, it's a physical life. He'll raise the, uh, the dead, the physical dead, and he will give them life, eternal life, at the final resurrection. On the last day, Jesus' voice will cut through the air and it will pierce through the graves of the dead. And at the sound of his voice, the dead will be raised. At the power of Jesus' voice, all the rot and all the decay and all the putrefaction will begin to undo itself and the ground will give up its long dead. They'll rise. And to this people, Jesus will give uh, to them, confirm upon them a life that will never end, eternal life that does not expire. But Jesus says he, he gives more than just this future eternal life. This life is also experienced more immediately. It's given even now. Look at verse 24. The one who hears Jesus' words and the one who believes the Father's testimony in the Son will not pass into judgment, but that person has passed from death to life. First notice that Jesus is saying that our default condition apart from the Son is that we are dead. Just saying what the, the Apostle Paul will say later, that we are dead in our sins and trespasses. But then notice the verb that Jesus uses, the verb uh, that, that uh, this person who believes has passed. And it's just a, sort of a geeky grammatical note that's important here is that this is in the perfect tense, which means that it's a, a past action that has ongoing implications. In other words, the person who hears and who believes Jesus' words has already passed out of death and is even now experiencing life, this eternal life. The person who has this eternal life, the person who has believed, even though they die and experience the temporary separation of body and soul, yet do they still live. Eternal life, by its very definition, does not stop. It's granted now and it continues forever. 
Jesus is saying the life that he gives, it's truly experienced now as people hear and believe the gospel. And yet this is, it's, it's an anticipation of the life that will be experienced more fully at the great judgment. The life that Jesus imparts now is, as we hear and believe the gospel is eternal life, but it is in seed form. And it will bloom more fully and it will bloom forever at the great resurrection. So the question then is, who does the Son give this life to? Well, the Son is pleased to give this life to those who hear his words and believe the testimony of the Father in the Son. More simply, eternal life belongs to those who believe in Jesus. For us today, that means that as we hear Jesus speak to us from the pages of Scripture, as we hear his voice in the preaching of the word, hearing Jesus say, this is who I am, the Son of God, and this is what I came to do, to give life. And as we believe that, we receive this life. That's the promise in this passage. But believing is not simply saying, well, yes, that's true, and sort of nodding our head. That's uh, not what John means. It's not what Jesus means in this gospel. In John's gospel, belief is an affirmation of the truth that has legs on it. It's believing something, and, and, and then uh, that belief leads to obedience. It leads to action. Belief is saying that, yes, that's, it, that's true. I'm convinced that's true, and so I must run to the Son and get life. I must run to the Savior to find eternal life there. I need what Jesus offers a dead sinner like me. And so let me just ask you, do you believe? Do you believe? Now, the Father has given life to the Son, and uh, the Son can give this life to whom he will. That's the first of the greater works that Jesus mentions here, but there is a second work closely related. Father has given to the Son the authority to execute judgment. Now, similar to the power uh, to give life, the authority to execute final judgment was considered the privilege or right of God alone. He was considered the ultimate judge. In the Old Testament, when Abraham's warned that God's going to destroy wicked Sodom for uh, her works, Abraham appeals to the Lord not to destroy the city and, and saying, Far be it from you, shall the judge of all the earth do, uh, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? He recognizes that the judgment belongs to God. The Jews knew from their Bibles that there would be a great and final judgment at the end of history, that all eyes would turn upon God as he executed judgment upon the wicked and vindicated his people. And yet now Jesus says that the Father judges no one and instead has given the authority to judge to his Son. Incidentally here we have an echo of, of what we've been studying in Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, where the Ancient of Days, God entrusts a kingdom and an authority to the Son of Man. And so God, the Father, gives to God the Son the authority to execute judgment. And it's the Son's voice that will call people to judgment and will pronounce the sentences. It's the Son's voice where he calls people forth and he, and he sends some to the, the resurrection uh, of life and others to the resurrection of, of judgment. Not on the basis of good works, as some have taken this passage to mean, but those who have believed will, will show themselves by their good works 
And, the, and John says later in his gospel that, that the work that God uh, loves most is those who believe the testimony of the Son. Now you might be thinking, how do we make sense of Jesus uh, judging here? Yeah, maybe you remember other statements in the gospels where uh, Jesus says that he doesn't come into the world to judge the world. And, and it's true that Jesus does say that. John 3 Uh, 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn or to judge the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. In John 12, 47, Jesus says, for I didn't come to judge the world, but to save the world. So how are we to make sense of of this? And did Jesus come to judge the world or did he not? Which is it? Well, to make sense of these verses, we need to understand, first of all, that the verb uh, to judge here uh, has two possible meanings. Sometimes when we use the word judge, it means to consider unacceptable or consider guilty. I felt uh, judged because my necktie was clearly purchased at the thrift store. Or they judged him because his eyes darted back and forth suspiciously when he entered the room. In this sense, judgment conveys disapproval or more strongly, condemnation. The words used in this sense in our passage in verse 24, the one who believes will not come into condemnation or judgment. Then again in verse 29, when it speaks of the resurrection uh, to judgment. He's speaking in in the sense here of condemnation. Well, this is the sense that Jesus is, is using the word when he says in John 3 that God sent his son into the world not to judge, not to condemn the world, but to save it. The purpose of of Jesus uh, entering the world, taking on human flesh, was not so that God could slap a verdict of of condemnation or of guilt upon this blasted, sin-filled world. That's not why the Father sent the Son. He sent His Son into the world to save the world. So in that sense, the Son did not come into the world to judge in the sense of condemning. But that's not the sense that's, that's used in verse 22 when Jesus speaks of receiving judgment and, and having, uh, being granted judgment from the Father. A second sense is used. Sometimes when we use the word uh, judge, it can also mean to evaluate or discriminate or to decide between. For instance, I might say that I uh, judged Kathy's lemon meringue pie to be the most delicious dessert at the picnic. Or I judged Bill to be the most qualified candidate for the position. In this sense, when we're talking about judgment, we're talking about making determinations or decisions. And that's what Jesus means when he uh, uh, speaks of judgment in verse 22. The Father has entrusted to the Son to distinguish between those who have believed in the Son and those who have rejected him. Now, while the purpose of the Son coming into the world was not to condemn, was not to condemn but to save, the inevitable result is that when he declares his judgments on that great day, some will be condemned because in his determinations, it will be shown that there were some who did not believe the Father's testimony in the Son. On that day, as the great judge, the Son who knows the very heart of every person will discern between those who have believed his words, who have believed the Father's testimony in Jesus and those who have not. Jesus, the Son of God, will call your name. He will set his searching eyes upon your face. Then at that moment, he will say, either say of you, if you've embraced him in faith, come, you who are blessed 
by the Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Or he will say, more dreadfully, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for Satan and his angels. Those who have not believed will stand condemned. The wrath of God still rests upon them as we hear in John chapter 3. So how do you escape such condemnation? Well, we've already said it. Verse 24, you hear Jesus' words and you believe. If you do this, you have right now eternal life. You have a life that will not fade, perish, or die. You will live forever. You will not come into condemnation. If you believe in the Father's testimony in the Son, you have even now this moment passed from spiritual death to possessing eternal life. It's what belongs to you. But how do you know if you're believing in the Son? It's a great question because it has eternal consequences. And here's my response uh, just from this passage. Look at verse 23. Jesus tells us the purpose for which the Father commits judgment to the Son. The Father gives judgment to the Son so that all might honor the Son in the same way they honor the Father. See, in the mind of God the Father, there is a connection between Jesus being the giver of life and Jesus being the judge of all the earth and people honoring and esteeming and valuing Jesus as they're to honor him. Belief that the Father is is, uh, true in what he says about the Son will, will display itself in honoring or treasuring the Son as he intends by giving the Son life and judgment. So more than just an intellectual assent to these things are true about Jesus, true faith, true belief will give itself away by counting Jesus as being vastly deserving of all honor by valuing Jesus as exceedingly precious, by cherishing him and delighting in him. It's the evidence of of this faith that brings someone out from condemnation, out from death, and into life. So what will you do with this Jesus, friend? For God the Father has revealed himself in the Son. So will you believe what the Father has said? Will you embrace Christ his son as the giver of life and the judge of all the earth? Will you honor him who brings sinners out from condemnation, out from death, and brings them into life? What will you do with this, Jesus? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you. We praise you. We are in awe of you that you have chosen to reveal yourself in your son, to make yourself known to us, to take on human flesh so that human eyes might set, their, uh, set themselves upon God in the flesh. Father, we thank you and praise you that within the Trinity there is this never-ending love A love that the Father has for the Son and the Son has for the Father that spills out in this perfect and vivid revelation of God in human flesh. Father, we thank you that we are not left to grope around and wonder who you are, but you have come to us. 
to show us who you are perfectly in the Son. And Jesus, we praise you as the one who has been given all life, and who has been given the power of judgment, who brings dead sinners and raises them to life, who will raise all at the last day, who will pronounce great and fearful judgments. And we just praise and honor you as the one to whom all authority and power has been given. Lord, help us, help every person in this room to believe the testimony that has been given in the Son, to believe it and then to delight, to honor, to esteem, to relish in Jesus as the one who gives life to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.